Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm Logan Finney. The second impeachment trial of former President Donald J. Trump has been underway in the U.S. Senate this week, focused on the January 6th insurrection that interrupted the counting of electoral college votes from the 2020 presidential election. The trial centers around whether Trump incited that crowd to violence, but before the breach of the Capitol itself were claims that massive fraud had stolen a landslide victory away from Trump and his supporters. In Idaho, however, three-quarters of respondents to Boise State University's annual public policy survey said they had no concerns about the security of Idaho's elections. For those who said they did, their highest-ranked concerns were voter fraud and issues with mail-in ballots, and those two concerns also appear to have some representation in the legislature. During the Secretary of State's annual budget presentation, Representative Priscilla Giddings inquired whether any of the voting machines or tabulators in the state had modems that connect to the internet. Representative Mike Moyle has introduced legislation that would make ballot harvesting, or the practice of collecting multiple absentee ballots and returning them together, into a felony. A few years ago, I was looking at Facebook at one of my friends, and on her Facebook picture, she's coming out of a hospital with a stack of ballots. She's not an elected official. She works at the hospital. That concerned me. Kind of put it in the back of my mind. Not a big deal, but it kind of concerned me. Then I had a constituent call and talk to me about something that he had heard about, and this is a story, I can't prove it, but they had a party. All the food and booze you could drink, price of admittance, one signed, unvoted ballot. We'll supply the booze, they said, we'll supply the food, you supply the ballot. That really concerns me, really, really concerns me. That proposal saw bipartisan pushback in the House and is slated for amendments. Former President Trump insisted that victory had been stolen from him in November. But is that true? Here to discuss the electoral vote count and all of the surrounding constitutional claims and legal arguments is Associate Professor Benjamin Cover of the University of Idaho College of Law. Professor Cover, big picture, what is the Congress's traditional role in administering elections and and overseeing those certifications? So specifically when it comes to presidential elections, um, the Congress does not play a role in administering the elections in the sense of running the elections. They play a role um, at the very end of the process um, in counting the electoral votes. So, you know, in the constitution, article two um, sets, you know, describes the electoral college process. Um, Most of that process involves things happening at the state level. Um, The state decides how to appoint electors, the electors have to meet and cast their ballots, and then the state sends those electoral votes to Washington, D.C. And then it's only at the end of the process that Congress gets involved, where the president of the Senate, which is the the vice president, um, opens the certificates of the electoral votes from each state um, in a joint session of Congress before both the House and the Senate. And then the language from the Constitution says, and the votes shall be counted. And so the, it's that counting where Congress uh, plays a role. And in, in many elections, that role has been mostly ceremonial without a lot of controversy and everybody agreed on how to count the votes. Um, but there have been a few times where there's been disagreement about what exactly it means to count the votes, what's the right way to count the votes. Um, And obviously 2020 was one of those elections. And could you explain just a little bit why the presidential election is set up this way, why it's divided between the various states and and not a a federal election for a federal position? As a general matter, I mean, the U.S. um, often has federalist approaches to lots of things where states play a really important role. Um, 
And the US electoral system is distinctive uh, because it gives such an important role to the states in running national elections. And this is not just for the, the electoral college, it's for Congress too. You know, elections for Congress are run by states. And a lot of important decisions about congressional elections, like the congressional map that's used, voter eligibility requirements, all of that is decided at the state level. Um, you know, why did the founders uh, do that? You know, we could we could talk about big constitutional law theory. You know, I think the founders um, thought it was really important for states to play a very significant role um, in the electoral process. Um, and so each state would choose its own electors. You wouldn't know who the electors were until shortly before they cast their votes. Um, then they would all meet on the same day in all these different states. Like you say, the election is very decentralized and run at like the state and local level. This year, there were objections to many of the results after they'd been certified. Um, and could you maybe walk us a little bit through that certification process at the state level and why it was so contentious this year? Sure. So first, let me say a little bit more about how votes are counted in Congress. Um, there was the an election, the 1876 uh, Hayes-Tilden election. Um, involved a lot of controversy because there were several states, four states specifically, where there was disagreement about who had won that state election, who were the proper electors from that state. And each of those four states actually had dueling slates of electors. Um, and they sent two different envelopes to Congress. And so there was a very long, complicated, drawn out, controversial process um, that Congress used to resolve that dispute in 1876. And, and then afterwards, largely because of the mess of 1876, Congress passed a statute, um, it's called the Electoral Count Act, that tried to provide clear rules of the road for how counting would go in, in all future presidential elections. And you know the rules of the Electoral Count Act govern what happened with Congress this past January, but it's also governed in, in all of the previous presidential elections. And it does provide an opportunity for there to be an objection to the counting of the electoral votes from a state. Um, that objection has to be in writing, signed by at least one representative of the House, one representative of the Senate. Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic? Mr. Vice President, I, Paul Gosar from Arizona. For what Sports, purpose does the gentleman from Arizona rise? I rise up for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. Uh, is the objection in writing and signed by a senator? Yes, it is. It is. It is not unprecedented for there to be objections made. Um, in 2004, um, when it was time to count the electoral votes from Ohio, um, there were Democrats who objected, and this time they actually got a senator to join the objection in writing. So Senator Barbara Boxer from California joined. That was significantly different than what happened in 2020 for a bunch of reasons, including back in 2004, John Kerry had already conceded the election. Everybody knew that George Bush was, become, was gonna become the president. 
Um, and I think a lot of people understood what Barbara Boxer and the other Democrats were doing was this kind of a symbolic protest and an opportunity to debate some of the problems that had happened in Ohio where there were very long lines and other barriers to people voting. But the, when they ultimately voted on Barbara Boxer's objection to the certificate, to the counting of the, the, the votes from Ohio, the vote in the Senate was like everybody else to one. You know, Barbara Boxer was the only senator who actually voted um, to, you know, to object. And then it, under the Electoral Count Act, you need to get a majority in both the House and the Senate for the objection to actually uh, take prevail. Um, that did not happen in 2004. They counted the votes from Ohio and they moved on. Um, what's different in 2020 is how many uh, members of Congress um, joined or voted for the objection. You know, there were a few objections to different states, you know, and the, in the Senate, it wasn't just one, it was like six, seven or eight senators, depending on the state. Um, and in the House, I think it was over 100 members of the House, you know, uh, actually voted. Um, and unlike in 2004, this wasn't a situation where John Kerry had already conceded, everybody knew that George W. Bush was going to become the president. Trump had not conceded. Um, Trump for months had been saying, I really won the election. The election was rigged. Um, I should be the president. Um, and Trump engaged in really unprecedented efforts to try to change the results of the, uh, the, the presidential electoral process. Um, and over 100 representatives in the House actually voted um, to object to counting the votes from a number of states that you know, could actually have changed the results of the election if they had gotten enough votes in both the House and the Senate. Right, yeah. Like you say, President Trump didn't concede the results of the election up until the very end, essentially. And he kept saying that there were, um, you know, claims of massive amounts of voter fraud and irregularities in the states. And so those are, those claims of fraud and claims of election irregularities are separate issues, even though they both contributed to this idea that the election had been stolen. So could you could you help me tease out those two concepts a little bit? First, it might help to distinguish between three things that, you know, fraud, mistakes by people running the elections, and then disputes about who has the power to, to make election rules. So is it the state legislature? Is it the secretary of state? is at the state Supreme Court, right? So there's debates about who gets to decide the rules. There might be mistakes in how you actually run the election according to those rules. And then there's then there could be fraud. And I think you're right, you know, Trump's claim and the claim of many associated with Trump and supporting Trump was fraud. And not just a little bit of fraud, an incredible, you know, the claim was that there was just an incredible amount of fraud to the tune of hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of votes that really is, uh, you know, so first of all, there's there's zero evidence that there's was any widespread fraud. And there's a ton of reasons to think that there wasn't. Um, and given that, you know, honestly, millions of Americans believe Trump that the election was rigged. Um, and some of those people um, are so convinced of it that they thought it made sense to attack the Capitol um, the day of the counting. You know, I think we need to be very clear with people about what these claims are. Because the, the claims of fraud um, are, 
they really are a conspiracy theory in the real meaning of the term conspiracy in that you have to believe that thousands and thousands of people are all in on this crazy elaborate coordinated plan to just completely manufacture votes right left and center and you know program software and just keep you know running the same ballots through machines you know multiple times um, which is completely impossible technologically logistically um, it, it's it is hard to overstate how uh, absurd and implausible some of these claims are. Um, and there were a number of lawsuits around these claims, right? There were, I think it was 60 filed, but to, to my knowledge, they didn't really go anywhere, did they? So there were over 60 lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign or by others kind of supporting the Trump campaign. Um, very few of those actually alleged fraud. You know, and I, and I think this is part of what people need to understand that there's a big difference between epic claims that people made on social media and at press conferences versus the just complete weak sauce that was actually alleged in courts of law. Rudy Giuliani actually argued in, in federal court one of these cases. Um, and the judge asked him, are you alleging any fraud? And he said, no, your honor, this is not a fraud case. And I'm not making that up. This, this is go read the transcript of that case. Everybody should, everybody should be very concerned when there's a big difference between what people are willing to say in press conferences and social media and what they're actually willing to say in briefs and in oral argument before courts. In that forum, the forum where um, claims of electoral fraud would be subjected to rigorous scrutiny, um, almost no one was willing to allege almost anything. Um, and, you know, and some of the very, very minor allegations that were made in courts of law were found to be, uh, were, were rejected on the merits. Even, you know, allegations were made in courts of law that there weren't enough poll watchers in the room from each party. Um, even allegations like that were dismissed on the merits by courts. Because you know, judges will ask lawyers, wait a second, are you saying there was no poll watchers from the Republican Party in this particular, you know, um, vote counting area in this precinct in Pennsylvania? And then the lawyer who's in court and whose bar license is on the line has to answer the, the judge. And the lawyer squirms and says, well, you know, uh, the number of Poll watchers varied throughout the day, uh, but you know we we do we do agree that there may have been a non-zero number of poll watchers, and the judge is like, "Come on, tell me exactly how many poll watchers you're alleging there was." Um, and when the judge actually gets it out of the lawyer, the lawyer admits that the numbers varied throughout the day, but there was over ten poll watchers. The claims, the kind of you know, Hollywood movie style claims of, uh, you know, manipulating the software and, you know, these conspiracies to double, triple count ballots and stuff. Um, I, I have, I've seen nothing to suggest that there's any plausibility to any of those claims. Like, you know, the U.S. has been running elections for a long time. A bunch of smart people have thought about how to make it uh, make it really hard 
to cheat in an election. Shortly after the election, um, I did um, like a local radio. I was on a local radio station where people could call in and ask questions. And it was like whack-a-mole, you know, where, and, and the people who were calling, I want to be clear, are lovely people who um, are, they are good faith supporters of Trump. They were disappointed by the results of the election and their social media feeds are just blowing up with all sorts of claims. It's hard for me as an election law professor to keep track of all of the different claims of fraud and to actually do the research and look into it and find out why this is wrong and why this is wrong and why this is wrong. I think it's impossible for just an average person to do this when it's not their full-time job. And so if everybody on your social media is telling you and every question that I got, you know, it, it's, I either immediately knew why it was, uh, why it was false or I could quickly figure out why it was false. You know, so there were more, there were more uh, votes than voters, right? Well, whoever made up that lie they took the number of voters from the 2018 election, and then they compared it to the number of votes from the 2020 election, right? So it's, it's misleading people in different ways. I don't know how much more there is to say about the claims of widespread fraud, except that almost nobody was willing to say them in a court of law. What people actually said in the 60 plus lawsuits that you were talking about was, they complained about the rules and they argued about who gets to decide the rules. Yeah, what, like you say, once those claims of voter fraud were shown to be pretty thin and unsubstantiated, the, uh, the story shifted away from claims of fraud and more to irregularities in the way the elections were run or changes that were made by courts or by executives in certain states. Um, so could we get a little bit into that? Because you, you referenced the certification on January 6th and the breach of the Capitol building. And um, after that, several congressional members dropped their objections. There were several states that senators had earlier in the day said they would object to that were dropped. But then there were still objections to vote counts in Pennsylvania and Arizona. And uh, so one of those 100 plus Republican members of the House that voted against certifying those states included Representative Russ Fulcher from Idaho's first congressional district. And he actually put out a, uh, a video statement on Twitter a couple days before the certification um, explaining why he was gonna vote against. Based on the following grounds, I object to the electoral report. Article one, section two, clause one of the United States Constitution specifically grants state legislatures the authority to prescribe election processes. However, this last November, there were undeniable occurrences whereby either state officials or a court bypassed their applicable state legislatures and redefined many of their respective election parameters. These actions warrant that Congress exercise its constitutional responsibility to question election results for any state in violation of their own election laws. Like we were just talking about, um, the, the statement from Representative Fulcher doesn't allege any fraud at all and you know does, does not make any specific claim that there was any, not just widespread fraud, just any fraud at all. Um, but the claim says that people have concerns about how the election was run. Um, and it seemed like the primary uh, concern was that the election needs to be run according to the rules laid down by the state legislature specifically. 
and that you the state executive like the governor or the secretary of state um, can't mess with those rules and the state courts can't mess with those rules um, now that is uh, that's a legitimate um, legal argument that's based on the the text of the constitution so in in article two you know it says that each state shall appoint presidential electors um, in the manner um, directed by the legislature of the state. Um, and it is true that the text of Article 2 doesn't just say that the, the manner of choosing presidential electors shall be directed by the state. It says by the legislature of the state. And there's another clause elsewhere in the Constitution that says the times, places, and manner of holding elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So it, it comes up in multiple places in the Constitution. Right. And the provision you decided from Article 1 is with respect to congressional elections for representatives and senators. And the other language from Article 2 is for the Electoral College. So both when we uh, decide how we're going to run uh, presidential elections in Article 2 and congressional elections in Article 1, the, uh, the manner is decided by the legislature. Now, there's some questions about exactly how to interpret this provision because outside of the election context, just as a general matter, the way states operate is that the legislature passes the law and then state executive officials implement the law. So the governor, the secretary of state, people who run state agencies on the ground have to actually implement the law. Um, and then sometimes state courts are asked to clarify the interpretation of the law or um, to consider whether the law violates the, con the state constitution. And so there are some questions about, well, what happens if a state legislature you know, writes an election code and says in the election code, the election shall be run by the secretary of state and the secretary of state shall have the authority to implement these provisions. And then there are some details that need to be figured out and the secretary of state says, here's the way we're gonna deal with those details. Um, there can be a legitimate debate about whether the secretary of state is acting in a way that is faithful to the state legislature, taking the authority delegated to them by the state legislature, implementing the election exactly the way the state legislature said they should, right? Um, or if the executive official is kind of usurping the authority of the state legislature or changing the rules in a way that's not fair. And then the same thing with courts, you know, so what if there's a, the, the legislature writes the rules, um, but some of the provisions might be ambiguous or vague, subject to multiple interpretations. Um, can the courts um, decide which is the right interpretation? Um, and then the other thing is, what if the state legislature writes a provision of the election code that is unconstitutional? Can the courts strike that provision down or modify it to address the, the constitutional problem? It's easy to say the Constitution says the word legislature, and so it's up to the legislature to decide everything. It's a little more complicated to decide exactly what should happen in specific situations and what is the exact role for the state courts and for the state executive officials. 
I think probably the strongest example of where there might be a problem there, um, where the courts are taking power away from the state legislature occurred in Pennsylvania. Um, the Pennsylvania legislature decided to set up a comprehensive scheme of mail-in balloting, but it provided that those mail-in ballots must be received by the by election day. Um, people challenged that provision given the pandemic, um, worried that there might be lots of people who do everything right and try to request their mail-in ballot on time, they fill it out on time, they send it in on time, but because of uh, postal delivery delays, because of you know an, a huge surge in the number of mail-in ballots that are being sent out and then sent back in, um, they might not be received on time and then their votes might not count. Um, that's exactly what happened in the Wisconsin primary elections in the spring. Um, and because there was that really hard deadline that it had to be received by election day, but some people didn't even receive their ballot until shortly before election day or on election day, um, what happened is that tens of thousands of, of people who did everything right and tried to follow the rules, their votes were thrown in the garbage. And so people were really worried about that in Pennsylvania and they filed a lawsuit. And at the end of the day, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the deadline, um, pushing it back three days. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was clear. It said, this is not what the code says. We're not engaging in statutory interpretation. Um, what we're doing is we are making sure that this provision um, complies with our state constitution, which provides for free and fair elections and requires certain principles of fairness where if eligible voters do everything right, they should have a fair chance of their vote being counted. So we're gonna modify the statutory scheme to make it comply with our state constitutional provisions and we're gonna push back the deadline by three days. Now, you can, you know, we can debate whether that's a good idea from a, in, a, for, in terms of policy. Um, we could debate whether that's the best interpretation of the Pennsylvania uh, Constitution. But we can also ask the question whether courts are allowed to do that, whether state courts are allowed to mess with the state election rules under Article 2 of the Constitution. Um, and I think it's fair to say that. Um, there is not a consensus among legal academics, among jurists, um, about exactly what that language in Article 2 means. So what you're saying is there's no like specific Supreme Court case you can point to where the court has said the word here, legislature, explicitly means legislature and no other body or means the state government more generally. Well, this issue came up in the Bush v. Gore case in, from the Florida you know, 2000 election recount, but it was not addressed by a majority of the court. The decision by a majority of the court in Bush v. Gore decided that the recount process in Florida violated the Equal Protection Clause because they were treating similar ballots differently depending on exactly who was counting the ballot or where they were counting it. Um, and that was the basis of the majority's decision to stop the count. Sometimes uh, Supreme Court justices write a concurrence and a concurrence means I agree with the result, but for a different reason. Um, in Bush v. Gore, there was a concurrence. It was authored by then Chief Justice Rehnquist and it was joined by Justices Scalia and Thomas. 
and it said, I agree that we should stop the recount. I agree that there's problems with the way that Florida is doing it. But it's not just that the Florida Supreme Court is running the recount in a way that's unfair or treating people differently. Um, they're also not following the election code. And they're interpreting the election code in, in ways that don't make sense or that's not faithful to the, the way the election code is written by the Florida legislature. And that violates the provision of Article 2 that says it's up to the state legislature to decide how to run presidential elections or how to appoint presidential electors. So that argument was specifically addressed by three justices on the court, but that's the concurrence, not the majority. And so the other six justices um, did not join that concurrence, which means that it's not binding precedent. Now, it's a little more complicated because before Bush v. Gore, there was another decision that the Supreme Court decided shortly before where they kind of sent the case back to the Florida Supreme Court and asked for the Florida Supreme Court to clarify, are you faithfully interpreting the Florida election code or are you changing the Florida election code? Um, because we're looking at article two and we're wondering whether you're changing the election code. And that was, you know, everybody signed on to that. And so some people say, look, the full court was worried about the Florida Supreme Court changing the Florida election code. And then other people say, okay, but when it actually came time to writing the opinion in Bush v. Gore, only three justices thought there was a violation of Article 2. Now, you know, this claim was adjudicated on the merits in some cases in the 2020 election cycle. So there was a, a case decided out of Wisconsin and the argument made um, in the case was that not that the Wisconsin Supreme Court changed the rules, but that election officials changed the rules. And specifically that local election officials and democratic parts of Wisconsin, they implemented the rules in a way that violated the election code. In that case, there was a decision by the trial court on the merits saying, no, this doesn't violate Article 2. Um, that was appealed to the Seventh Circuit, and then there was a unanimous decision by three judges on the Seventh Circuit panel that agreed with the district court and said there's no violation of Article 2 here. In the case, you know, the, the court said a few things. So this is, it, it's called Trump versus Wisconsin Election Commission. Um, the decision by the, um, the, the judge who decided it was Judge Brett Ludwig. Um, in the East United States District Court for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Note that Judge Ludwig was, is a recent uh, appointee to the bench who was nominated by President Trump. He looked at this argument in the Wisconsin context and said, maybe the election officials are, are making, you know, are, maybe they don't have the best interpretation. Maybe there was a different way for them to, to implement it. But I think that they were trying in good faith to follow the election code and that that does not violate um, Article 2. That was appealed to the Seventh Circuit. You get a panel of three judges. It was Judges Flaum, Rovner, and Scudder. I believe all of them are appointed by Republican presidents. They unanimously upheld the decision by the district court. And they, and they said, you know, look, 
people don't know exactly what this clause of Article 2 means. There's some debate about it. There's not that much uh, case law on it because it rarely results in a published opinion. And they said, deciding the precise contours of the electors clause is a difficult endeavor. Um, they note that there's at least two interpretations um, because the language talks about, you know, that uh, it requires each state to appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct presidential electors. And so everyone agrees that legislature means legislature, but there's a question of what does manner mean? What does it mean to appoint electors in the manner that the legislature specified? Note that early in American history, sometimes states didn't even have elections for presidential electors. They just directly appointed the presidential electors. And some people think that the word manner means deciding the big picture question of, is the legislature gonna appoint the electors? Or are we gonna have a popular election amongst our state voters to decide who the electors should be? And that manner is just deciding that big question. That's up to the state legislature. Once you decide you're gonna have an election, then there might be rules for election officials to run it for the courts to interpret provisions of the election code, right? They also recognize that maybe manner means more than just the big picture decision, are we gonna have an election or not? It also means exactly how the election is gonna go. And it could mean everything from, you know, who gets to vote in the election to when exactly can you vote to what are all the requirements for signature verification and witnesses and receipt deadlines and everything, right? They looked at the concurrence in Bush v. Gore. That was, that was the one I was talking about that was Rehnquist, Scalia, and Thomas. And they said, even that opinion said the problem in Florida is that the Florida Supreme Court was interpreting things in a way that was not substantially consistent with the legislative scheme. So they were, they, were really, they were really changing important things about the way the election was gonna be run in Florida. We would not go, this is the Seventh Circuit saying, we would not go further and require that Wisconsin's officials in perfectly interpret every isolated section of the election code. And we think that as a general matter, the election officials in Wisconsin followed, substantially followed the legislative scheme. There could be nitpicky arguments about every single decision that they made, but we're not gonna turn every single nitpicky argument about what's the best way to implement the code into an Article II violation. Um, and I think pe people need to think about when, you know, when, when we make these arguments, we need to think about how it's gonna play forever, right? for the next president, for 2024, 2028, for elections 50 years from now, do we want there to be a federal constitutional issue that has to be decided by federal courts and ultimately the United States Supreme Court anytime anyone disagrees on the best way to implement a state's election code? Remember that, you know, that Republicans generally favor more state power, less interference by the federal government, less decision-making by an unaccountable judiciary. But in this instance, they want the federal Supreme Court to be able to overturn an election anytime there's a disagreement about the best way to read um, an isolated provision of the election code. 
Um, so for, for representatives who think that there's an Article II problem in the way that the elections were run, I think it would be helpful for them to provide more specific information about exactly what were the decisions that you thought were wrong and what do you what exactly do you think this provision of article 2 means because the only way to enforce the article 2 provision is to throw out state election results and that is a really big deal and people should be concerned about that under what circumstances do we want the supreme court or members of congress from other states to be able to throw out the results of an election certified in Idaho because they think we did it wrong. They think that our election officials didn't follow the code right and they know the code better than we do. As I said earlier, I think this debate about what exactly does Article 2 mean when it says legislature? You know, how exactly is it supposed to work? What can state courts do? What can state election officials do when working with the election code provided by the legislature? I think there's some tough questions there and reasonable people can disagree. But what I think is not a, a reasonable good faith argument is that we don't like the way Pennsylvania did it. So we want to throw out the results of the election, that the proper remedy for that is just to throw out millions of votes from the, the people of Pennsylvania. Only for the president, though, and not for Congress, to, you know, to Representative Fulcher and to other uh, representatives who thought there were procedural problems in how Pennsylvania ran their election or whether it's Michigan or Georgia or Arizona who who objected you know I think there's a question was it just a symbolic vote or did they really mean it because what that vote what that vote would actually do if they actually had a majority is that it would throw out the electoral votes from that state that, that's what the vote was for are we going to count them or not and they voted, no, let's not count the votes from this state for the Electoral College. And that means millions of people in Pennsylvania voted and we wanna throw it all out. But we're not gonna to object to the members of the congressional delegation from Pennsylvania or the congressional delegation from Arizona uh, or Georgia or Michigan. If you think that there was a structural problem in the way that a state ran its elections, and that it wasn't really you know, done in the way decided by the legislature because of interference by courts or election officials. I, I'm not, I don't understand why you're okay with the results of the congressional election. It's the same election. All the decisions by the courts about the mail, the, you know, the, the deadline to receive the ballots, those ballots had votes for president and for Congress. We talked about there's language in Article One about congressional elections. There's language in Article Two about presidential elections. They both use the word legislature. So if you really take seriously that it's up to the legislature to run those elections and that limits what courts and election officials can do, and you think there was a breakdown there, there was a structural problem where the state did not follow its own rules, um, then why are you not objecting to the, the, the results of the congressional election? Um, also, did you go through all 50 states and look at in all 50 states if there was any, you know, if there was ever a situation where election officials exercised discretion or the courts changed anything? And are you objecting to all those states? Or is it, it just so happens that on this matter, of, you know, that if this is a matter of principle, why is it that you are only objecting to the presidential results only? 
from only states that Biden won that would determine the outcome of the election. Their argument, their like principled reason is that there was a structural breakdown. And it seems to me that that would be the same whether Biden won Pennsylvania or whether Trump won Pennsylvania. And so I think that people should ask them and I think that they need to be able to look somebody in the eye and answer honestly. If Trump had won Pennsylvania, I would object to the counting of the votes for Trump because I think that they didn't follow their own rules. If Trump had won Arizona, I would object to the votes for um, Trump. I would rather Biden be the president because I believe in the principle that we should throw out millions of votes from a state if we think the state didn't follow its own rules. Most members of Congress who objected to the counting of votes for Biden from swing states, they said it was a matter of principle standing up for Article 2, it's up to the legislature. And the problem is that the courts are interfering too much with the legislature. The election officials are kind of subverting the, the legislature's rules, but it's the legislature that should run everything and we need to respect the legislature more. Except for Senator Josh Hawley. Because if you look at what Hawley said, he said that his objection was not that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court interfered too much. It's that they didn't interfere enough. You know, about a year before the presidential election, the Pennsylvania legislature adopted pretty much universal mail-in voting where everybody in the state could, could vote by mail. That was done by a Republican-led legislature on a bipartisan basis. And nobody had any problems with it until at the end of the day, Trump lost. When Trump lost, people made the argument that the entire mail-in voting uh, statute violates the Pennsylvania Constitution because there's a provision in the Pennsylvania Constitution that severely limits when you could have mail-in voting to specific situations involving you know, excuse-based absentee voting. And the argument that Josh Hawley made is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court should have struck down the entire mail-in voting statute in Pennsylvania, and that that's why he's objecting to the results from Pennsylvania. Whereas most other uh, members of Congress who objected said, the problem is when the courts don't respect the legislature. The legislature should decide things, not the courts. Hawley said the court should have decided stuff, not the legislature, because the legislature violated its own, its own constitution. And so I would love to see a debate where Josh Hawley sits down in a chair on one side of the table and others who objected to the results sit down on the other side of the table and they figure out, they discuss between the two of them and explain to us um, what is the proper relationship between the legislature, the courts and election officials at the state level under article two. Because it seems that if the state Supreme Court makes a change, a bunch of people say they just violated Article 2. But if um, they don't, other people said they just, they just violated Article 2. And I think that that's a really problematic thing as we look forward to future elections. I think that we need to figure out exactly what Article 2 means. And we need to have a national discussion about under what circumstances it's appropriate to be objecting to the results of the presidential election.
well, Professor Cover from U Idaho Law, thank you so much for making the time for me today. Sure, thank you.